If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. As Hitler gained control in Germany and Mussolini secured his hold over the Italian state. One group was trying to replicate their success and establish a fascist regime in Britain. The British Union of Fascists and its leader, Oswald Mosley, make an appearance in the latest series of the BBC drama Peaky Blinders. And to find out more about the real movement and its leader, I spoke to Nigel Copsey, a professor at Teesside University specialising in fascism and anti-fascism in Britain. Today we're going to be talking about the British Union of Fascists and its leader, Oswald Mosley. Can you tell me, as a historian, how you became interested in the story of fascism in Britain? Why is this such an interesting or, or an important part of our history to get to grips with? I think... Um probably for a, a variety of reasons, one, is, one of which is that um, we do have something of a, a, a national myth, I guess, about how tolerant we are as a country. And I just wondered whether that was you know, really true, that was really the case. Questioned that and got interested in um, racism and the far right, Yes. Yeah, so for those people at home who might not be familiar with the British Union of Fascists, let's just cover off a couple of basics before we launch into the conversation. What can you tell us about the lifespan of the BUF as it was known? When was it founded and when was it disbanded? So the British Union of Fascists was um, established, first established in the October of 1932, and it was disbanded um, shortly after the beginning of the Second World War. So we're into 1940, the spring of 1940, when it was disbanded. So I guess about eight years or so, yeah. In those eight years or so, what kind of activities did the BUF get up to in Britain? I mean, the British Union of Fascists uh, wanted to uh, project itself as a kind of, as a radical dynamic force kind of the exact opposite of the conventional old gang parties that were govern governing Britain at the time. And what this meant was that they adopted a paramilitary style, 
Um, so they, you know, they wanted to convey a dynamic sense of struggle, of action, of unity. Um, and, the, and the key to this was, I guess, donning the black shirt. So the black shirt um, in, in Britain was in the style of a fencing uh, tunic. Um, and they held marches, public rallies, meetings. I mean, they held a vast number of meetings. Um, I mean, we we tend to be very familiar with the largest ones, such as ones held at um, Olympia in London in 1934. There were there was a, um, large meetings at the Albert Hall, Earl's Court, and so on, and also in outdoor places as well, Hyde Park in London, also at Bellevue in Manchester. So when you're saying they they held large meetings, how large are we talking? How popular was the BUF at its height? I mean, there's various indicators of of, of popularity, of course. I mean, if we look at their membership, for instance. So the the BUF, the British Union of Fascists, enjoyed a very swift rise in popular support, and it was largely fuelled by um, the sponsorship from the press baron, Lord Rothermere. Um, one of his uh, newspapers was the Daily Mail. And the Daily Mail had featured an infamous headline in January 1934, Hooray for the Black Shirts. And on the back of Rothermere's support, membership was said to have approached 50,000 by the summer of 1934. So this was their peak of popular support. Now, uh, following the events at, um, at Olympia, so Olympia was a, a rally um, held, a major rally held in June 1934, which led to uh, violent clashes. Rothermere's support for Mosley ended, and membership then hemorrhaged down to something like, I guess, about 5,000 by late 1935. And then it recovers somewhat in the run-up to the Second World War. This is largely on the back of an anti-war campaign. Um, and the BUF support got up to about 22,500. So that's their membership. El- sorry, el- electorally, they never came close to winning a seat at Westminster. So they never got into the national parliament. Locally, um, they did have some representation. There was one BUF member who's a town councillor in Worthing, and there was a, there was a councillor as well in Suffolk. So they had a couple of local councillors. Um, but e- electorally, I suppose they're a good measure of their support or lack of would be in um, the, lo- the London County Council elections that were held in 1937. So they, 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 sta- they stand, they put up candidates in these elections. They're holding about, I think, something like 400 meetings. So really big effort went into these local elections in London, and yet they only captured about... 7,000 votes. I think there was about 80,000 or so votes cast. They polled 7,000. And that was their real stronghold. That was their real fiefdom of support. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of membership, um, significant to begin with, then it falls away, um, electorally negligible. Uh, so, So it would be fair to say that there was never more than a substantial fringe movement. Yeah, I think that's that's fair enough. Um, I mean, obviously, it did have uh, considerable impact in terms of its effects in the East End and other places where you had, you know, quite sizable Jewish communities. And this is to do with the 
the militant anti-Semitic campaign um, that the BUF begins to launch from the end of 1934 onwards. And those effects could be seen in terms of not just the volume of meetings that were being held, but also in the context of Jew baiting, um, of intimidation, harassment, um, and often violence um, against Jews. So when we say it could have uh, effects locally, um, and it did have, uh, but not necessarily so much nationally. Following um, Olympia and the withdrawal of establishment, uh, any kind of lingering establishment support for Mosley, what happens is that the BUF then um, and, it, and it then turns to militant anti-Semitism in an effort to revive its flagging fortunes. Now, so there was an element of political opportunism to this. And the BUF's anti-Semitism is best defined or understood as a form of cultural anti-Semitism. It was basically this idea that Jews were said to be behind Britain's uh, British cultural and social decline in the 1930s, that they were involved in this kind of, it was a kind of conspiratorial um, Jew hatred, um, that Jews were said to be responsible for the spread of decadence within kind of art, within literature, within the cinema, within boxing, within sport, etc., uh, etc. Et right. So it was a kind of conspiratorial form of um, anti-Semitism, rather than a racial form of anti-Semitism that you would see with the Nazis. If we're looking at the BUF ideologically, what were some of the other important tenets of their political ideology? Well, I think the, probably the best way of approaching the BUF and to understand where it comes from is to, is to see it basically as a response to the Great Depression. And so its ideas, its economic ideas... And, and political ideas, if we put anti-Semitism to one side, were largely framed in response to that crisis. So, you know, we ha obviously had the Wall Street crash in October 1929. We have a global economic slump ensuing. And, and at that time, we have this figure of Oswald Mosley, quite young, you know, char charismatic, flamboyant figure. He was a rising star in the Labour Party at that time. I mean, he was under consideration to be made foreign secretary because we have uh, a, a Labour government, a minority Labour government um, under Ramsay MacDonald. In the end, he gets appointed Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. So he's a, he's a Labour cabinet minister without portfolio. And he has this specific brief, and his brief is to deal with unemployment and the unemployment crisis, which was reached, had reached about 2 million. Now... Mosley was dead set against an orthodox deflationary response to economic crisis, right? And he proposes a very dynamic and interventionist approach. He, and he was furious when his, when his proposals get rejected by cabinet. And so he resigns from the cabinet in May 1930. He then sets up this new party. It's actually called the New Party. And this is the immediate precursor to the British Union of Fascists. This new party is a curious hybrid of, of radical left and conservative right. Uh, the communists detected an incipient fascism in it. 
They weren't that far off the mark, but it doesn't do very well. It contests elections, general election in October 31, and it's a complete failure. Mosley then goes off to Italy. He visits Rome, meets Mussolini, and he gets really impressed by the, uh, the fascist system in Italy. And so he comes back, decides to set up the British Union of Fascists. Now, he establishes that British Union of Fascists modelled on Mussolini's fascism. So he takes the black shirt, the fascist salute, and critically, a key signature theme, which was the corporate state. So this is a key theme of the British Union of Fascists, right? The corporate state. And what do we mean by the corporate state? Well, what mostly envisaged in the corporate state was a parliament based on an occupational franchise rather than an electoral franchise. And this would run alongside a form of kind of industrial self-government where industry, each industry, would be organised into these corporations. And the idea behind these corporations was that they should provide a form of partnership between employers and employees. Now, over and above that, you would have this fascist government Mosley then would be the leader of this fascist government, and that would only be answerable to the king. Now, obviously, this would suggest dictatorship, and Mosley said, well, no, it's a kind of, we're going to call this a modern dictatorship. He said, in the old-style kind of tyrannies, you'd have government ruling against the will of the people. With fascism, government would be implementing the will of the people. So so you mentioned there that Mosley was heavily inspired by Mussolini and his regime in Italy, but did he draw inspiration directly from Hitler's regime in Germany as well? And how much ongoing dialogue was there between the BUF and those two fascist regimes? Right, yeah. So what you find is that, you know, to begin with, as Mosley, uh, his closest connections were with, were with Rome, right? So in April 1933, he goes back to Italy, visits Mussolini, and and he's accorded the honour of a 100,000-strong black shirt parade. And from 1933 onwards, the BUF receives a subsidy from Rome. So it's funded from Rome. It's to the tune of about, or would be the equivalent of about £2 million in today's money a year. Wow, that's a, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, right? Um, and these funds were used to support the party's running costs because the membership subscriptions weren't enough to support it. So, and you get this funding, and this funding lasts through to about 1937, by which time Mussolini begins to have lost faith and interest in Mosley, right? Um, and the withdrawal of the Italian subsidy forces the closure of, of the party's headquarters and dismiss, dismissal of some leading officials and so on. But what it meant was that Mosley became more reliant on the Nazis. And so he looked to get funds from Germany. Um, Mosley had met Hitler in 1935, and the connection in Berlin was made really made possible through Unity Mitford. Now, Unity Mitford was... Uh, this kind of Hitler-obsessed aristocrat from, from uh, who had an aristocratic famous family, the Midfords, and uh, her sister, Un- uh, Diana Midford, 
was uh, having a relationship with Mosley, right? So Diana Midford and Mosley went on to marry in secret at Goebbels' house in Berlin in 1936. So there were close connections there. Um, they're also reflected in the change of the name because in 1936, the party became known as the British Union of Fascists and National Socialists. Um, so the word fund's been um, uh, channeled through to um, mostly from Berlin, but they were relative to the Italian funding, it was more modest. And I think Hitler really regarded Mosley as more thinker. Uh, than a doer. Is, was that a fair assessment? Let's talk a bit about Mosley. How important was he beyond the foundation of the party in, in bringing in new members and ensuring its success? Mosley was the leader with a capital L. He, he, he was projected as the quintessential new fascist man. You know, he was this kind of charismatic, flamboyant, virile figure he was projected as being supremely masculine, athletic, you know, dynamic, um, somebody who had a kind of uncomparable uncom spirit, who had these immense reserves of energy, of strength, of resolve, of courage, you know, great orator, great speaker, etc., etc. And this was all being kind of projected as the as as mostly being the exact opposite of what was seen to be the political class. And the political class in this country was uh, feminised by the British Union of Fascists and said to be decadent, you know, corrupt and so on. So you have this cult of leadership that's built up around Mosley, which is really, really important. And these devotees, you know, would greet him with a fascist salute and shout, Hail Mosley. And you have this aura really built around him as a leader of the movement. And he's an interesting figure, isn't he? Because am I right in saying that he was trying to appeal to a working class demographic, but he himself did not come from that demographic? That's right. And he did have um, success, some success in doing that. Um, when we look at um, fascist um, parties, the traditional view is that their support was largely middle class. Now, when we look at the BUF, uh, what we tend to find is that uh, there was a wide variety of social groups that um, that supported uh, the BUF. So in the East End, for instance, East End of London, there were large numbers of uh, non-unionised working class uh, supporters. Um, but again, there'd be a hefty number from the middle class. Um, so it would vary by area. I mean, the BUF in particular appeal to youth and, and directed much of its attention to, as of obviously the other fascists did in, in Italy and Germany, to attracting young people, uh, young men to its ranks. And that's where the kind of militarization of the movement becomes important. It was disproportionately male, but then I think about 25% of its membership was actually female. Uh, despite a cult of masculinity that's built around Mosley and so on, um, the, the British. What's interesting about the British Union of Fascists is that they didn't project themselves as being radically anti-feminist. You know, um, they they said that they recognise women's right to work, that they should have equal pay, and they did actually attract some former suffragettes. On top of um, obviously those reasons for appealing to women, what were some of the things that drew people to the party? What did people think it could offer them? 
what you would have to begin with, again, it, it relates to the phases of the, of the party and how it develops. So that initially, when it's getting supported by the Daily Mail, um, what middle-class uh, people saw in Mosley was um, somebody who could offer a more dynamic and virulent form of conservatism. So these were the kind of conservative fascists, if you like. Um, and certainly that was Rothermere's position, you know, that Rothermere felt that um, what you wanted what he wanted from Mosley was a kind of more, almost to give the conservative uh, conservative party a kind of sh- a shot in the arm, you know, in order to make it more uh, dynamic and more muscular in terms of its approach. So that's what uh, the you know some middle class elements would see in him to begin with. But then, as you go on, what you tend to find is that. As the support gets uh, more focused in on certain areas, and in particular in in London's East End, it, it is anti-Semitism that you know that's drawing uh, people to uh, to Mosley's movement. And then finally, at the end of the decade, it go, the support becomes a little bit more middle class again, and this is largely due to its appeasement anti-war policy. So a broad church, basically. A broad church, yeah. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So all told, about 750 or so were interned. And in July 1940, all BUF political activity ceased when the organisation itself was shut down, when it was banned. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You mentioned something earlier, which I wondered if we could return to, which was the Olympia rally of 1934 and how that was a key turning point in the party's um success and the way it was viewed what happened at the olympia rally mostly had held um, a very large meeting his first large meeting in london i think was at the albert hall in april 1934 so this was several months before olympia um and the opposition to that had been fairly low-key right so there hadn't been much in the way of opposition to that particular meeting uh, and the next one was due to take place at Olympia in London on the 7th of June. Now, the seating capacity at Olympia was almost twice that of the Albert Hall. And the, in particular, the Communist Party in London didn't want a repeat of the Albert Hall or there'd be negligible opposition. And another thing that uh, made them really keen to organize uh, opposition at Olympia was that many of the great and good were going to be there. There were, I think, about 150 or so MPs 
were to be at Olympia. So a big uh, group of MPs were to be there. Now, in the event, several hundred anti-fascists had got inside Olympia, many of them with forged tickets, and as Mosley had begun to speak, um, he was systematically heckled uh, by these um, anti-fascists. And those that had heckled him were then singled out. Um, they were forcibly ejected by black shirt stewards. Um, and many of the anti-fascists received particularly fierce treatment in the foyer of the hall before being thrown out onto the street. And I think all in told there were about 36 or so people arrested with uh, a good 14, 15 or so requiring uh, hospital treatment. Now, the next day, public reaction was indignant. You know, there was a real outcry about the extent of the BUS violence. And the effect really was to alienate uh, potential support from within the British establishment in particular. And, of course, it did him no favours across society more generally. And one of the key key uh, factors was it, it really... Um, you know, it made Rothermere think again. And and although uh, Olympia wasn't the cause, the single cause of his break with Mosley, it was one of them. The significance of Olympia then really is that um, the membership of the party hemorrhages significantly. Um, and then they turn, the party turns, the BUF then turns to uh, anti-Semitism really as a way to revive its flagging fortunes. You mentioned the um, communists being a, a major part of the anti-fascist movement, but who else was in this anti-fascist resistance to the BUF? Well, I think it's important to uh, to note that active displays of opposition to Mosley's uh, fascists involved many, many thousands of people. Now, to begin with, it was led by the Communist Party, um, and it was quite small scale and low level. But with the Nazi seizure of power in 1933 and the consolidation of that power, it spread out and it started to involve ordinary Labour Party members and supporters, you know, trade unionists and so on. And what happens is that we see the creation of a number of so-called united fronts. So these are local-based um, uh, campaign groups, if you like, that are starting to emerge at a grassroots level across the country. Um, and these united fronts um, are really involving, uh, they involve communists, but they also involve many others as well from within the broader labour movement. Uh, the Communist Party establishes a central anti-fascist coordinating committee in 1934, um, as a way of trying to uh, impose some kind of central coordination over these uh, united fronts. Now, the Labour Party then responds to this and says, we don't want our activists cooperating with the communists. Their line was, one of the key reasons for the rise of the Nazis in the first place was the strength of the Communist Party in Germany and the damage that it had done to the Social Democrats in Germany. So what they said was, we don't want you telling its members, we don't want you to uh, participate in 
um, demonstrations against Mosley. So the Communist Party tries to um, tries to break this ban, if you like, through a massive demonstration against Mosley in Hyde Park in September 1934, and the number of counter demonstrators at that um, uh, rally was huge. I mean, the fascists were were massively outnumbered. The, the Labour Party leadership was still calling on its supporters to avoid cooperating uh, with the communists. But the call for restraint was ignored by many, especially by young members of the Labour Party and something called the Labour Party League of Youth. So you do have it broadening out from the Communist Party to begin with. It broadens out to the wider Labour movement. Now, as the BUF adopts a more openly anti-Semitic position, opposition widens further beyond the left to embrace specific Jewish groups. So what you get is a more broad-based uh, anti-fascist alliance, if you like, um, and this was most evident in in London's East End, uh, where there was this anti-fascist movement. Um, it was a loose one, but there was this broader-based Jewish communist alliance. So if you look back at the 1930s, there wasn't a national anti-fascist organisation as such. What you had was a kind of patchwork of different local groups and committees the communists were a leading player in this, but, our, but we shouldn't overstate their role. You know, opposition could be violent. I mean, anti-fascists did disrupt fascist meetings for sure in 1936, for instance. About 60% of fascist meetings in London saw some kind of organised opposition. But also we need to bear in mind that a good proportion of fascist meetings, whether they were in London or elsewhere, went unopposed. There was no opposition in a, in a large number. There was no opposition. And one of those key moments of um, the anti-fascist alliance um, defying the BUF was, of course, an event that's now become known as the Battle of Cable Street. I wonder if you can tell us the story of what happened that day and maybe take us back to the scene. What would it have been like to be on the streets when the Battle of Cable Street was unfolding? Yeah, so what happened was that, you know, following Olympia and the decline in fortunes, the, BL, the, the British Union of Fascists had turned to militant anti-Semitism. And they begin to focus their campaign in particular on the East End of London, where about, I think about a third of Britain's Jews lived, right? So it's uh, about 100,000 or so Jews lived in London's East End at that time. Now, that campaign uh, combined a generous supply of street corner meetings. There were lots of street corner meetings, and we're talking about hundreds every month. This is significant. And there's increasing levels with that of anti-Semitic abuse, of intimidation, violence, and so on. I mean, people refer to this period as a period of genuine fascist terror in the East End. So, mostly, um, ever the opportunist decided it would be a good idea to march through the East End to try and capitalise on this campaign. Now, the Stepney Communist Party, local Communist Party, which had about um, 200 or so members in 1936, was really determined to organise a militant response and bar the road to Mosley and stop Mosley from marching. Um, on the day, between I think it was between 100,000 and 300,000 people mobilised against the British Union of Fascists. And, the, and there were two key flashpoints. One was at uh, Gardner's Corner in the East End, where the 
there was a, a massive crowd. I think about 50,000 people had formed this human barricade to stop the fascists. The other flashpoint, of course, was at Cable Street, where anti-fascists had erected barricades. And it was there at Cable Street where you see the most dramatic clashes taking place. But these clashes were not clashes between fascists and anti-fascists. There were clashes between anti-fascists and the police. Uh, and it was anticipation of further disorder because of what was happening at Cable Street that the police decided to force Mosley to abandon the march. And so the march was abandoned. So when you say we have um, the erection of barricades at Cable Street and violence with police, what exactly are we talking about there? How violent did things get? Well, got, I mean, it'd be pretty nasty in terms of, obviously, uh, you had uh, police charging with horses, using batons and so on. There were missiles being thrown down from windows, and et cetera, et cetera. So it's pretty, um, you know, it's pretty nasty. Um, and, of course, you know, there was much myth surrounding Cable Street in that it was deemed to be, a, you know, a major victory for popular anti-fascism. Um, that it that it inflicted a crushing blow on Mosley and finished and finished him basically. But is that fair? It's not. No, it didn't stop it. It didn't stop fascism in the East End. Um, but but it did have two major consequences, which I think are really important. The first was the introduction of the Public Order Act, and the Public Order Act was introduced. Um, in 1936, became becomes law from the beginning of 37, and this is really important because it bans political uniforms. And you know, I put I talked earlier about the stress that the movement had placed on the black shirt and the paramilitary style and so on. Um, and that banning of political uniforms was a major psychological blow to the BUF. But you know, more damaging still. Um, was the withdrawal of the Italian subsidy because Mussolini had been, was clearly had been clearly unimpressed by how Mosley had complied with the police order to disperse at Cable Street. He was like it's, he saw this as a, a sign of cowardice, you know, and he thought, well, that's it, and and so they lose that funding, which is really important because it then precipitates triggers an internal crisis in the movement. So there's a lot of emphasis on Cable Street. There's a lot of mythology around of it. Some of it is, I think, deserved. Some of it is a bit overdone. Um, and it's also important to bear in mind that there were also other major demonstrations uh, and, and counter-demonstrations taking place after Cable Street. In 1937, for instance, at Bermondsey, uh, there were, there were uh, major clashes between the fascists and anti-fascists in Bermondsey, which we often forget about. So, you know, it does occupy the focus a little bit. But, um, but, it, but having said that, it, I think it was important. So if we are going to talk about the, the demise of the BUF, um, what are the key moments? How did it get disbanded and what became of the members afterwards? What happened was that with the outbreak of the, the Second World War, the government had become increasingly suspicious of fascist activity, and in particular of connections with Berlin. So you have a former leading figure in the British Union of Fascists, a guy called William Joyce, who began to broadcast Nazi propaganda on the airwaves from Germany. He was obviously dubbed Lord Haw Haw. But there was also the case of... Um, a cipher clerk at the U.S. Embassy, a guy called Tyler Kent, 
Now, Tyler Kent had links to British fascist circles, and he had been caught intercepting secret correspondence between Churchill and Roosevelt. So there were concerns there. And, and I think concerns were further magnified by the rapidity of the Nazi blitzkrieg in the spring of 1940. The government, you know, was thinking the success of the Nazi blitzkrieg was the consequence of Nazi fifth column activity. And the fear was that Mosley's fascists would act as a fifth column should Hitler invade. So in May 1940, under something called Defence Regulation 18B, Mosley and uh, leading members of the BUF were arrested and interned uh, in Brixton uh, Prison, and then further sweeps followed. So all told, about 750 or so were interned, and in July 1940, all uh, BUF political activity ceased when the organisation itself was shut down, when it was banned. And did its members generally turn away from fascism or did it evolve into other political movements? Um, well, those that, um, those that were interned um, kept the flame alive. Um, so they continued to support Mosley. Um, now, obviously, uh, amongst the general population, you know, he's widely deemed to be a traitor or a potential uh, uh, Quisling-type traitor. Um, but amongst his followers, his, his devoted followers, uh, they continue to support him. And so he, he, he then... Um, makes an attempt to return to uh, politics after the Second World War, and he sets up a new organisation called the Union Movement. Uh, he returns to areas around London's East End, um, again uh, focusing around anti-Semitism, focusing on anti-Semitism in, in order to try and build up support. Um, so he doesn't go away, and those that um, had followed him through into internment, and then after, many of them are still there after the Second World War, uh, supporting Mosley again. My final question to you is just why you think fascism was never able to take hold in Britain in the way that it did in Germany and Italy in the 1930s? For a variety of reasons. I would say that I think timing was crucial, right? So the political crisis in, in Britain came in 1931, uh, and it was resolved through the creation of the national government in 1931. So Mosley was too late. The economic crisis never really reached the depths that it did in Germany. So timing, I think, was really important. It was just badly timed. So that's you know one reason. Critically as well, I think there was a lack of a communist threat in this country. Uh, the Communist Party, um, yes, it, 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 its support grew, and it was always small. And the Labour Party, at least nationally, uh, refused to cooperate with it. Um, so there was not that perception of a, a kind of real threat, if you like, coming from the left. Then we have the extent of popular opposition. 
uh, and that opposition, when it turned violent, which it often did, um, invited a violent response from the British Union fascists. And this generated adverse publicity. So when the publicity that the, 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 the movement attracted, um, what it did was to push the BUF further to the margins. So it, it, it struggled then to build political respectability. You have the adoption of anti-Semitism, of course, which reinforced the links with Hitler. Vicious Jew baiting and so on has no place in polite society, you know. You then have the Public Order Act, of course, loss of the black shirt, big blow, and then the removal of the Italian subsidy. The BUF is nearly bankrupted by this, and, and they cause much internal division and weakness as a consequence. That was Professor Nigel Copsey, who specialises in fascism and anti-fascism in Britain. He's based at Teesside University. The latest series of Peaky Blinders began on BBC One yesterday and is available now on iPlayer. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.